Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books and Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Teo Balve, author of The Frontier Effect, State Formation and Violence in Colombia, published this year by Cornell University Press. Dr. Balve, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So to start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Sure. Um, well, let's see. I, I was born in Argentina, but grew up uh, mainly in the U.S. and different parts of Latin America. Um, and so after college, I sort of fell into this journalism job uh, that was focused on reporting in Latin America, specifically a magazine called uh, NACLA out of New York. That was sort of a lefty magazine about Latin American politics and um, I began working as a journalist and then started doing a lot of freelancing um, in different countries um, and ended up in, in Colombia in about 2006. And I moved to Colombia and started reporting on the drug war there. And during one of those uh, reporting trips, I was in this part of uh, southwest Colombia where there was this meeting between indigenous people, uh, indigenous groups, and Afro-Colombians. And they both started talking about how in the far northwest of the country, so this is up by Panama, this region called uh, Urabá, um, there was these palm oil plantations that were being developed by uh, right-wing paramilitary groups and their you know, associated um, companies, and that these oil palm plantations were dispossessing these Afro-Colombian communities. And so very shortly after that trip, um, I organized a trip to this northwest part of Colombia, Urabá, and I started doing an investigative journalistic project on that, uh, the dispossession of those communities. I was trying to find a link between um, oil palm companies, the violent paramilitary groups, and actually a uh, grant money from USAID, which was supporting uh, different agricultural projects across the country. Uh, So I spent like a year investigating um, that story. And 
I was at the same time, you know, I had gotten into investigative journalism, but at the same time, I was getting kind of sick of freelancing. Um, and I would always kept a foot in, in academia. And so I decided to, to go back to graduate school and um, went to a geography program at, at Berkeley to get a PhD. And that investigative uh, project was essentially like the foundations for my, for my dissertation project, which was very, and many, many years later turned into, uh, into this book. So that's uh, a bit of a long story short. There's more I could go into, but that's, that's the nutshell. Okay. Well, I'm sure we'll get into some of the other things as we go through uh, some of the other questions that I've got for you here. Um, so your subtitle of the book says state formation and violence, not state formation or violence, state formation versus violence. Because one of the things that uh, you, you do in your book is to challenge the idea that if there's violence, that means state formation has failed to occur or that state formation necessarily brings peace. So could you elaborate on that uh, idea? Sure. I mean, there is this this very widely held view, um, not just um, among the sort of political science scholarly uh, community, uh, but also I think in in most conflict uh, ridden places. You know, whether you're whether you're talking about Colombia or you're talking about um, parts of Mexico, even or um, the DRC, which is this assumption that. Wherever there is, you know, political violence, it's often because of uh, a lack of a state presence. So it's this Hobbesian argument that, you know, wherever there's a vacuum of the state, you have that war of all against against all. Um, and what really surprised me when I started visiting this region of Colombia is how, and lots of regions of Colombia actually, is, is how prevalent that discourse is. I mean, no one's citing Hobbes, obviously, uh, but you go to almost any one of these really, you know, hot spots of violence in Colombia that have been, you know, mired in conflict for for decades and decades, and you ask almost anyone from any part of the political spectrum, like, you know, why has this uh, place been so violent for all these years and invariably almost like you know without fail uh they'll tell you oh well it's it's the absence of the state um and 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 i what i tried to set out in this book is at the same time you know take those claims seriously uh don't just dismiss them as like you know false consciousness or something like that um but really look into how this idea of absence is not necessarily a product of of um or that that violence is, is a result of this absence but rather that this whole idea of absence in a way um lays the groundwork or, or creates the sorts of conditions and possibilities for all kinds of political projects uh to to sort of flourish and and they're violently opposed to each other and it's that kind of conflict and that interaction between those various different state projects, none of which really um, agree with each other 100%, that generates the sort of violence that, that I was seeing um, in this part of, of the country. So, um, yeah, I mean, whether you're talking about left-wing guerrillas, whether I'm talking about uh, right-wing paramilitary groups, the security forces... Uh, unions, landowners, all these different groups that I saw sort of coming into conflict in these really complicated ways were sort of 
in the business of of state formation in this kind of very violent uh, process. So, yeah, I, I you know state formation. I think anywhere at least you know in in some ways is, is a violent uh, process. But there's something about these parts of Colombia where everyone thinks the state is you know nowhere to be found, where you can almost see those sorts of struggles almost like in 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 real time. Yeah, so I want to kind of dig into that uh, a little more and get into some of the specifics of these state formation processes that uh, that are going on. And you know, we're on the Geography Channel, uh, so I was particularly interested in your discussions of uh, the formation of territory as part mm. of these uh, projects by you know all those different uh, groups you named the unions and the left-wing guerrillas and the right-wing paramilitaries and, and so forth. So uh, could you talk a, a bit in particular about the, the territorial dimension to these uh, rival state formation projects? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, maybe it would help a little bit just to give like a, a thumbnail sketch of like the groups here and a little bit of the, the background of the conflict. Um, in the 1960s, you had this proliferation of left-wing communist-inspired guerrilla groups um, in different parts of, of Colombia, and then those, you know, those groups were sort of a traditional Cold War story with counterinsurgency from the state and those left-wing groups, you know, fighting back, dirty war from the government. Um, and then in the 1980s, uh, the the cocaine trade really um, really took off. Um, and that helped the guerrilla groups really finance their uh, tremendous amount of growth. So they expanded to all different parts of, of the country. Um, and those drug traffickers had been starting to buy rural land and laundering money um, in these, you know, very agrarian uh, parts uh, of the country. And those guerrilla groups started kidnapping the drug traffickers, just as they had done to the, you know, old school landowners before. Um, and holding them kidnapped for ransom payments. And that's also how these guerrilla groups financed each other. Um, and the, the response to that was this huge backlash where those old school landowners and the new you know, landowning narco elite kind of joined forces and created these right-wing paramilitary groups that teamed up with the military to fight back the guerrillas and ended up, you know, slaughtering hundreds, thousands of, of civilians, uh, you know, accusing them of, of harboring guerrilla sympathies. So that's kind of like the broad uh, sketch here. And, and the reason that that story is important is because in what I call these frontier uh, regions of Colombia, you have all those different groups. There are you know, a handful of different guerrilla groups. There are the right-wing paramilitaries. You have the the narco traffickers. You have the landowners. You have the state security forces, sort of civilian government um, actors, international aid groups. Um, and what happens in these spaces is that, especially from the armed groups, they start vying for control over this, in this case, a very strategic region of the country, um, and to control those areas, they create these territories. In other words, these spaces in which they say pretty much like, you know, what happens here uh, is, is what I say goes within this particular given um, space. And 
what ends up happening is that you get this sort of proliferation of territories and you can imagine these like different territories almost like sloshing around in a in a cauldron and they kind of come together and they they collide and wherever they overlap there's these very violent conflicts to gain control and when one group takes over another group's territory the the civilian communities that lived in that space are then being, you know, overrun and persecuted by the new, you know, um, you know, boss in town. Um, but rather than, and this is the sort of geographical thing, rather than seeing these territories as just these, you know, patches um, of of land demarcated here, there, and everywhere. Uh, what I really try to show in the book is the way in which these territories are formed as a series of social relationships. So those social relationships involved, one of the relationships I really focus on is the relationship between uh, a given armed group, uh, say the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, the FARC, uh, one of the leftist groups, and civilian communities, or the right-wing paramilitaries and the peasant communities that end up you know, in, uh, have, um, inhabiting those, those uh, territories. Because it's not just like a group can show up and say, you know, this land is my land now. Uh, they have to, I describe it as a process of both coercion and consent. So they have to show up and they have to really, you know, smash out the competing group and the sort of social networks of support. Um, so that involves oftentimes like massacres or displacing the civilian population. But then there comes a time where it can't be all coercion all the time. If you want to keep control of the space, you also have to kind of cultivate um, consent uh, among the population. So it's this sort of um, choreography between coercion and consent that these armed groups have to engage in uh, with these civilian communities. And that involves you know, all kinds of things. I saw armed groups doing little land reforms or, you know, building schools and, and bridges or brokering relationships with the municipal government, um, all kinds of things. And it's in that relationship, in that social relationship of territory that this these state formations, as I call them in the plural, kind of bubble out of those of those processes, not always in intentional ways, um, but in some cases, in very conscious ways. All right. So let's talk now a bit about your specific study area, because you were focusing mm -hmm. on this region of Uraba that is in the you know, far northwestern kind of part of the, the country near Panama. So, mm -hmm. you know, you describe it as a, a frontier zone. So could you talk a bit about, you know, it, what, in what sense is this a frontier zone and why does that matter for mm -hmm. uh, what you're saying about the conflict in this mm -hmm. region? Yeah, so this is, it's, um, as you said, uh, northwest region of the country. It's called uh, Urawa. It's not like an administrative unit or district in any sense. So you can think of it almost like in that kind of amorphous way that we think of like Appalachia or the outback in Australia. Um, it straddles a few different, um, three different departments or states, provinces, um, departments they're called in Colombia. And it's a kind of lowland, tropical region. There are some more mountainous areas. Um, 
And historically, since the 1960s at least, it's been a uh, banana export enclave. And um, the importance of it being um, a frontier is that, like all frontiers, it's an, a kind of an imaginary geographical uh, formation. And so even during colonial times, um, Urawa or Darien, as it was called back then, was seen as this kind of savage no man's land. Um, and then around um, the 19, well, yeah, around 1900, um, Colombia, through some engineering from the U.S. government, loses Panama. Panama used to be a, a, a province of, of Colombia, and the U.S. helps uh, Panama secede, essentially, from, from Colombia. And Urabá is right next to Panama. And so you had a lot of uh, Colombian elites at the time worrying that um, – that Urawa would be next, and that there's this, you know, this patch of land Urawa that's unruly, it's ungoverned. We have to kind of bring it into the fold of the nation and and bring it under um, our control. And those arguments were coming most strongly from urban elites based in Medellin, and Medellin is one of Colombia's largest. Um, cities and for a long time it's been this industrial commercial financial kind of powerhouse in the country um and the reason Urabá was important to those elites is because medellin is in the middle of the mountains and it's part of this uh province called antioquia and it's landlocked or it was back then and so those elites saw Urabá as this as they called it, their outlet to the sea. So if Medellin was to prosper, they would need to bring this unruly, ungoverned region under their control. And you begin seeing a lot of these discourses about, you know, bringing, I mean, back then they were talking, the tropes were about, you know, civilization and barbarism. Had this whole like very racist and to us in the United States, a very familiar kind of frontier discourse um, and they even talked about manifest destiny. So it was very much on the model of, of the U.S. You know, relationship to the Western frontier. And the frontier in that same sense um, was as much a sort of conjuring of the imagination of the space as it was a material process. So if in the U.S. West it was the railroad that kind of consummated uh, that whole relationship, in Urabá it was a road. And these elites in Medellin and, and the government, uh, the state government of uh, Antioquia, uh, wanted to build a road into the region to make it their agricultural sort of, um, at the time they were hoping to turn it into uh, cotton because Medellin had textile mills. Uh, but it ended up turning into this uh, banana enclave uh, sponsored by the U.S.-based uh, United Fruit Company. And whether it was in the making of that road or is it was in the making of the export enclave, um, both those processes involved the mass dispossession of local Afro-Colombian and indigenous communities who were being, you know, again, exploited in this very um, colonial kind of way. I call it internal colonialism. Um, so it was this racialized making of this frontier. And as a, as a geographer, I'm, I was very interested in the way that was both a work of the imagination, but also a kind of political, economic, very material sort of process 
Um, so I talk a lot about the construction of the road and the way in which um, surplus capital from Medellin was like, you know, spurting into the region, being shunted into the agricultural projects as well um, in a process we call um, uneven development. And well, like I said, throughout that entire process, it was sort of built on this whole idea of this, you know, savage land that needed to come under the sway of the predominantly white, rich, uh, urban uh, elites from Medellin who are also very conservative, religious. I mean, you can think of Antioquia as almost like the Texas of Colombia. It's like, it's about you know, manly, chauvinist, deeply religious, conservative, cattle culture in that same sort of frontier sort of way. And, and the, those were the elites that were, you know, descending on this region and um, throwing everyone off their land to, to implement these political economic projects. Okay. So changing gears a little bit here in your little bio sketch back at the beginning of the interview, you mentioned that you had been a journalist doing mm -hmm. uh, research and writing about this conflict before you became an academic uh, working on the same topic area. So could you tell us about what were some of the, the differences that you found in both the, the research process and the, the writing process between looking at this conflict as a journalist and then looking at it as uh, an academic? Hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. It's something I think I struggled with a lot, both um, methodologically and uh, in writing. Well, I don't know. Struggle is really the right word, but I, I thought a lot about the, the sort of interplay between the two. Um, I think as a journalist, especially when I first arrived to this region, I made a, a series of mistakes about, um, you know, accessing some parts of this, of this region is really hard. And so like I, I would contact these NGOs that would help me, um, gain access essentially to certain kinds of communities that I otherwise wouldn't have access to. Uh, but associating so closely with those, um, NGOs, which was sort of like what I had to do to get the story, um, made it really hard to talk to other groups in the region. So the, the, that door opened, but the doors to, say, the, the, those communities like sworn enemies were immediately shut off. Um, and so when I started developing this project, I was really careful to Basically, the strategy I came up with was talk to everybody. So I would talk to paramilitaries. I would talk to the guerrillas, the landowners, the union activists, the displaced peasants, the government people, um, basically trying to show myself as not being of any one particular group. And so it wouldn't be weird if I was talking to a guerrilla one day and then the next day he sees me talking to like his sworn enemies. Um, you know, in some other community. Um, and then a lot of the, the journalistic uh, methods that I used to uh, research um, land grabbing, you know, going to public records research, going to chambers of commerce and like collecting this huge archive of like bureaucratic documents and notaries offices and you know, triangulating within those documents, but also triangulating with what people were telling me um, was a really useful uh, thing to do. And I think that that, that 
So ability to track down and work with documents was something that I, I got from um, the investigative journalism um, that I was doing. And then in terms of um, in terms of writing, you know, I wanted I wanted to tell a story. I mean, narrative is is really important to me. Um, and in some ways, it's kind of a burden because I wish I just didn't care and could write like some really dry, um, you know, just the facts, ma'am, sort of story. But uh, I, you know, I, I do my best to um, make my writing um, readable uh, and engaging and develop uh, characters and, and that kind of thing. Not out of, you know, I'm not making it up. Um, but I, I do try to think of it in that sort of creative nonfiction um, kind of way. So that uh, that was both, you know, an aspiration and, and a bit of a curse because it made, take, made it made me take forever to to write it. Well, I will say that the the writing in this book is very engaging and and readable. Uh, you definitely <laughs> Thank you. did not fall into the the dry academic tome kind of uh, <laughs> writing style that we see. Glad sometimes. to hear it. Glad to hear it. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah so i want to follow up a bit on you know you were talking about how you were able to talk to all the different sides of uh the conflict and one of the things that i found really interesting about the book is that not just that you're talking to people that are on different sides of this conflict but you're talking sometimes to some pretty big figures uh on the various sides of this conflict. And in particular, one of the sort of major personalities that runs through a lot of the book is this uh, paramilitary leader that's called El Aleman, uh, the mm -hmm. German. Mm -hmm. um, and it was just kind of impressive that you got this access to him and were able to uh, interview him about uh, his role in the conflict and uh, you know his perspective on things. So could you talk maybe a bit more about uh, that individual and, you know, what, you know, kind of how you, how you got to be able to actually talk to him and uh, then what that brought to your, your research? Sure. Um, yeah. So El Aleman, whose uh, name is uh, Freddy Crendon, um, he showed up to Uraba in when he was like probably in his late teens, early twenties, I can't remember exactly when. Um, but he he was a truck driver. That was like his first job was essentially being like a truck driver's assistant, <laughs> sitting you know shotgun. And then he started driving his own trucks 
And, um, you know, it was like he would take beer to the region or, or whatever it was and often came back uh, to Medellin. He would go from Medellin to Urabá, deliver the stuff and then bring back a bunch of contraband. Um, so he started off as a truck driver. And as a truck driver driving through the roads of Colombia in, you know, the 80s, you were being constantly harassed and stopped by guerrillas. You would have to pay like what they would call tolls um, and, and, and those kinds of things. And so he, he took... Uh, pretty strong dislike uh, to the guerrillas, um, not only because of that, but also because his family as a child had been thrown off their land by um, by the FARC, by the guerrillas. And um, he shows up to Urabá in um, the mid-90s, and he meets um, one of the, essentially one of the founders of Colombian paramilitary groups. Uh, his name is uh, Carlos Castaño. And he's just like his jaw drops when he hears this guy talking. And he was this very charismatic ideologue, ideologue of the paramilitary movement. And um, El Aleman's like, you know, well, I'm, I'm just going to join up with these guys. I don't, really don't have a whole lot more to, you know, better to do. And so he joins in the mid 90s and very quickly, you know, climbs the ranks of the paramilitary group to the point where Carlos Castaño is like, hey, you need your own paramilitary group. Like, you know, they're divided into blocks. And so Carlos Castaño was like, why don't you run, you know, these parts of Urabá with this new uh, paramilitary group, um, which ended up being called um, the Bloque El Mercárdenas, or just the BEC or the BEC. And so El Alemán became the BEC's uh, commander and he was probably the savviest counterinsurgent paramilitary commander um, that that I can think of. I mean, there might be a couple others, but he's certainly up there. So much so that Carlos Castaño would send El Aleman and his group to different parts of Colombia when they were kind of opening new fronts in the war. So they were like, hey, Aleman, we're going to start this you know, campaign against the guerrillas in the Amazon, like go there and like be, be the spearhead essentially of our counterinsurgency campaign there. Um, so he, he was this really powerful uh, paramilitary commander. And he was also like incredibly and remains uh, incredibly charismatic. And so despite the fact that his group was this murderous, you know, killed thousands and thousands of people in some of the most gruesome ways that we've heard in, in Colombian contemporary conflict um, through, you know, thousands of people off their land. Um, he managed to build this um, huge base of popular support um, in, in, in Urabá. And going back to your question about as a journalist, you know, when I was a journalist, I would see that and I saw um, his, his supporters protesting outside of his trial. So when he went to trial, he, his supporters were out there in front of the courthouse, like, you know, demonstrating in support. And I remember being like, oh, what a bunch of bullshit. Like, that's just, you know, that's all smoke and mirrors. It's just for show. Uh, but then through like long-term fieldwork, I began learning so much more about the relationship that he managed to cultivate with so many communities. Um, and he has this very sophisticated um, narrative or discourse about the conflict, about his own personal experiences, um, about how, you know, he's fighting for the communities um, it's not the story you usually hear about right-wing paramilitaries in Colombia. 
just like in Colombia, all the armed groups, they, they've all done terrible things. Um, I'm not a supporter of, of the FARC or the ELN or any of the other guerrilla groups, but the right-wing paramilitaries really are, you know, some of the most brutal uh, of all the armed groups that have been um, involved in the conflict. Um, they've done these huge massacres. And so they're, they're often like the, the bad guys of the story, especially in academia, uh, because they're, you know, right-wing counterinsurgency. They're really like supporting the political economic elites of the country, you know, some pretty shady, unsavory characters. Um, and what was really interesting to me about El Aleman and his, his, um, his paramilitary bloc specifically was that ability to build these uh, relationships with, uh, with civilian communities. Okay. And then again, changing gears a little bit here, uh, the main kind of capital T theorist uh, that you engage with in this book is Henri Lefebvre. And so I'm interested in how you kind of learned about Lefebvre and uh, came to see his work as useful in explaining uh, what's going on in Colombia. Um, yeah, so I, at Berkeley Geography, where I did my PhD, um, there was, I mean, I think like in a lot of grad schools, especially at that moment, you know, I think Foucault, Gramsci, and Lefebvre were sort of major touchstones of critical uh, geography. And um, Lefebvre, in, in, in so many ways, to me, still to this day, is like so impenetrable. I mean, it's really hard sometimes to follow um, the things that he's saying, but I was really struck by this whole idea of the production of space, um, the way in which, and it kind of goes back to what I was saying about the frontier, the way in which space is this is is a is a series of social relationships that are both, you know, ideological, mental, discursive, uh, but also concrete, physical, material, and then third that they're that there's spaces that we live and um, that space is something that we live um, and experience and, and all three dimensions of space, if you will, are, um, are, are, are essential uh, to it. And the things that I was seeing in Uraba about the way this, you know, region was portrayed and projected and produced as a frontier zone um, really jived with what the production of space is all about in my mind. Um, territory too. Uh, I read a, a piece by Stuart Eldon and Neil Brenner about the production of territory. So they were applying Lefebvre's framework to uh, to territory, and that just made a lot of sense. You know, I I, I could see how, say for instance, in the case of uh, the paramilitaries, how you know the violence that they were um, waging to control an area the agricultural plantations, the agribusiness plantations that they were introducing, uh, the people they were killing and displacing, the kind of like rhetoric and discourse they would use. I mean, I could see in every case um, how this, this whole very um, sophisticated understanding of, of space, space as a social product made a lot of sense in explaining um, the kinds of things that that um, that I was looking at, um, 
so for me, he was just a way to take this um, sort of fetishized, commonsensical thing that we don't even really think about or consider, aka space, um, and really show how formative it is to um, social relations, to society and our politics and economics. I mean, um, all up and down. Uh, it just made a, a lot of sense to me. And um, yeah, I guess that's that's kind of how I how I came to it. And it just I don't know, it just it clicked because of that um, production of space that made so much sense to me, whether I was thinking about the frontier, about territory, or about like community, too. Um, so take, you know, any kind of spatial constructs. Um, and it, it's, it's a powerful tool, I think, in like picking apart a series of relationships and finding the, the most, you know, the most powerful or formative ones. Okay, well, now that we've given our listeners a good idea of what this book holds in store for them, uh, we always like to end our interviews by asking what you're working on next. What kind of projects are you taking up now that this book is out? Yeah, this is one of those, uh, and now for something completely different kind of moments. Um, I So I, I um, work at Colgate University. I'm in Peace and Conflict Studies and, and Geography here, and Colgate is in um, central New York. So like that's like four hours northwest from New York City. It's like a middle of nowhere, very rural area, um, about 45 minutes outside of Syracuse. Um, and I teach a class on environmental security. It's like this very critical approach to environmental security. It's essentially like a, a political ecology of violence class. Um, but um, I, I thought at one point it would be cool to have like a local prepper come and speak to the class. Um, and I met this guy here who lives in the area. Um, and I started, um, he, I wanted him to come and talk to my class about like preppers and, you know, environmental disasters and that sort of thing. I just thought it'd be cool to have like a completely different uh, perspective uh, on, on some of the issues that we were talking about. And um, he's come to my class now, I don't know, like almost every year I've, t I've taught the class um, and just kind of struck up a relationship with him. And um, he very nicely like invited me to join um, his uh, prepper group. And so I started going to the, their monthly meetings and essentially started doing like participant observation, um, you know, prepping. <laughs> so I've accumulated a good amount of preps in my basement, as they're called, and um, have still been going to, to those meetings. And um, while doing this, um, I started um, the, the different people in the preppers group would make these sort of passing comments about how like, oh, this weekend we're going to go to this like, you know, trading, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, well, is that like, a, is that like another prepper group? And they were like, oh, yeah, like a sort of a prepper group. Well, it turns out that they are in these um, different, what they would call, I think, patriot groups. So the Oath Keepers, Three Percenters, um, Militias, uh, some would call them. And um, I, I got interested in that whole relationship between prepping and um, armed right-wing politics here um, in rural uh, America. And so I started working on that issue. And then, um, you know, January 6th happened. 
and it was all the groups that I had started to to read about um, the year before. And so that's, I don't know exactly what the research question is or whatnot, but um, that's the direction that I'm, that I'm going in now. I just, it's really kind of sucked me in. Um, so I find it really, really interesting. And it's, it's not so far-fetched to see the connections um, with my, with my work in Colombia in the sense that, um, you know, both in some ways kind of deal with grassroots um, armed movements and right-wing politics um, and rural political economy, so agrarian political economy. Um, I don't know. I, I do see see the parallels, but it is, um, I don't know, refreshingly uh, different. Um, so, I mean, I haven't left Colombia completely uh, behind, but the, the sort of stuff that I was like sort of looking into wasn't um, getting me as excited as this, um, you know, local project that I have going here. So for at least like the near term, that's that's what I'm going to be, you know, looking into. Okay, well, uh, shout out to Colgate University since that's my <laughs> alma mater, the class yeah, of O2. Totally. So I think a little bit before uh, you got there, but um, yeah, that project sounds fascinating. And if you end up turning that into the book, maybe you'll come back on the show and talk about that. Oh, that'd be great. I'd love to. Many, many years from now, probably, unfortunately. <laughs> but yeah, that'd be great. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, so you just heard a conversation with Teo Balve, author of The Frontier Effect, State Formation and Violence in Colombia, published this year by Cornell University Press. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. 18- plus.